Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Backblaze Online Backup, a simple way to backup all your movies, photos, music, videos, and all the data on your Mac or PC for just $5 a month. It's simple, and you can access all your data online from wherever you are. Start your 15-day trial absolutely free by going to backblaze.com slash cpc. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com slash c-p-c. Thank you very much. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. everybody, I'm Eric Arnault, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. We're back this week with the second part of our farewell to Andrew Bentley, one of our very favorite voices on this show since the beginning. Andrew curated and hosted this episode himself, and it was a terrific farewell to someone I know we're going to miss a ton. This week, you'll hear from the wonderful Aaron Diamond, Drew Creel, Ben Rathert, and Chris Crotwell, plus music from myself, Dwight Hassler, Katie Johnston-Smith, Chris Blake, Andrew himself, and also the aforementioned Ben Rathert. This is a packed episode, so let's get right to it. Uh, maybe have a tissue around. You might get a little misty. It's not too bad, but, you know, we're going to miss you a lot, Andrew. Thanks for everything. me to introduce this song i don't know if he knows what it is but uh this he gave us a list of like 15 songs to play and he's like you know the usual music i listen to isn't really something like your guys' style is suited for which is totally legit so he found some songs that he really liked that he uh, thought we would be good at tackling we should have played that fan of the opera song that would have been oh oh thank you i did want to talk about that i'll talk about it in a minute i think i think if we got him to he might sing it for us i'm not sure I still remember it a little bit. Anyway, um, so this is an artist that, that I like a lot. Uh, I'll tell you that Katie laughed when I was practicing it. She's like, oh my god, you're doing your John Darnielle impression. And that's true. I guess I do have a little bit of an impression. Uh, this is by the Mountain Goats. It's called Up the Wolves. Yes. There's bound to be a ghost at the back of your closet. No matter where you live 
There'll always be a few things, maybe several things That you're gonna find really difficult to forgive better you'll rise up free and easy on that day and float from branch to branch lighter than the air just when that day is coming who can say who can say our mother has been absent ever since we founded Rome but there's gonna be a party when the wolf comes home. This is like the old war stories. That's true, when it was only you and me and no other instruments. It's very sweet. We're gonna commandeer the local airwaves. We need that stage bass drum though. Just to tell the neighbors what's been going on. That sounds like shit. <laughs> And they will shake their heads and wag their bony fingers in all the wrong directions and by daybreak we'll be gone. All right, get ready. a melodica and so I'm like okay I don't need my harmonica for this song and then he does that shit <laughs> Worth it. speaking of harmonica speaking of Chris Blake and speaking of Andrew Bentley singing songs like, oh god so alright so we have to talk about the elephant in the room before Andrew says what he's gonna say who was around for your stories back in March of 2012 who remembers the musical episode we did at the upstairs gallery where Andrew, Andrew had Dwight and I learn songs that he wrote in high school. Yeah. I only remember one of them, but the, the opening line, well here, I'll give it to you. The Phantom of the Opera had the right idea if he couldn't have a no one could. Boy, it was. What a shame. If only it was preserved somewhere for posterity. Yes. Yes, it's called Forbidden Fruit. Oh, good God. Uh, Eric, I will also tell you that any song that Andrew and I ever wrote, 
he'd come up to me and go, all right, here's how it goes, and start singing it. But in, in his, however, he's just like, he was just like, this is how I think it should go. <laughs> it would sing it his way, and it was just like, how, uh, it, like this? He's like, that's good enough, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. So anyway, this is, a, this is a Johnny Cash song. You want to set it up? Uh, yeah, I have um, over uh, many years of your stories, I have never gotten up and sung with Eric, but uh, Johnny Cash is very much in my, my vocal range, at least usually I've been drinking and shouting for the rest of the night, so hopefully it still is. Uh, my reasons for choosing the song since I'm moving to Atlanta should be fairly obvious. One, two, one, two, three, four. Hey Porter, hey Porter, would you tell me the time? How much longer will it be till we cross the Mason-Dixon line? At daylight will you tell that engineer to slow it down? Or better still, just stop the train, cause I wanna look around. Hey Porter, hey Porter, what time did you say? How much longer will it be till I can see the light of day? When we at Dixie, will you tell that engineer to ring his bell? And ask everybody that ain't asleep to stand right up and yell. Hey Porter, hey Porter, it's getting light outside. This old train is puffing smoke and I have to strain my eyes But ask that engineer if he will blow his whistle please Cause I smell frost on cotton leaves and I feel that southern breeze Hey Porter, hey Porter, please get my bags for me I need nobody to tell me now that we're in Tennessee Go tell that engineer to make that lonesome whistle scream We're not so far from home so take it easy on Stop this train, I'm gonna jump off first Cause I can't wait no more Tell the engineer I said thanks a lot And I didn't mind the fare I'm gonna set my feet on southern soil And breathe that southern air Second half, um, a a wonderful form for a wonderful performer, uh, someone who I first encountered at the the paper machete, uh, doing one of the most spot on impressions I have ever seen of Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, she does a mean Melania Trump as well, uh, and when she started up a passion project last year uh, to with her her own money to put on a show called. Uh, 
uh, a Christmas with Melania um, at the Uptown Underground. Um, she was someone I had seen at uh, Paper Machete, really enjoyed their work. I had no idea um, that she knew who I was whatsoever. Um, and then she, uh, uh, she asked me to uh, play a, a role in that and trusted me with one of the uh, central roles. I was on stage literally the whole time playing uh, uh, Manafort. Um, who, she had no idea at the time my weird connection with that person. <laughs> Um, but uh, I was extremely touched uh, that this person whose work I respect and I had no idea had any knowledge of me um, would, would trust me with something like that. Um, and she's probably, of in the eight and a half years uh, I've been in Chicago doing shows, um, she was probably the, the, the kindest, most generous, most collaborative showrunner I have ever worked with. Uh, she is also a brilliant performer. Uh, her name is Erin Diamond. Please welcome us. I grew up in a household with a lot of teasing. And while my mother's teasing was very impish and sweet, my father's teasing could reduce me to tears. He started with the classic, I've got your nose, and a preschool age me would giggle and shout back, no you don't, it's right here on my face. To which he would reply, it is right now but later it's going to fall off. <laughs> and then I'm gonna keep it in a jar on my workbench. <laughs> Visitors to our house often remarked on my strong resemblance to my father and he would turn to me and he would say, you know what that means, don't you? You're gonna grow a mustache just like me. <laughs> He continued with the mustache bit after he caught me using his chapstick. That helps grow daddy's mustache. <laughs> now it's gonna help to grow yours too. <laughs> I knew he was teasing me and I would tell him that I didn't believe him, but I felt this tingle of doubt because he was so convincing. He was so calm when he confirmed the loss of my nose or my future mustache or that he and my mom found me in the mailbox. <laughs> and there was something about this tingle of doubt that I sought out, something about it that I liked, some kind of fun in the fear that what my dad said might just be true. But then there was the bit about the dog. There's nothing unique about longing for a dog when you're a kid, but the intensity of my longing manifested itself in ways that were intense. It was common for me to spend my weekends opening my neighbor's gates to their fences, sometimes even opening their sliding glass doors and playing with their dogs without asking for permission. I love dogs, big time. I begged neighbors to let me walk their dogs free of charge. I would have been a phenomenal dog owner, which is why I wrote the word DOG in capital letters on top of my Christmas list every year since I learned to spell the word, despite our no dogs allowed rule in our house. 
The weeks leading up to the Christmas of 1993 felt particularly promising. I was eight years old and I had proven myself as a dog walker and trainer and I knew that my dad took notice. He followed me into the laundry room one night as I pulled on my snow pants and boots and he asked, where are you off to? I told him I was taking Winnie, our neighbor's beautiful Great Pyrenees for a moonlit walk. And my dad smirked and said, what will Winnie do when you're busy walking your own dog? I squinted up at him and I said, you said I can't have a dog, dad. And he smirked again and said, well, maybe Santa thinks you can have one. And there it was, that tingle of doubt. Was he teasing? I couldn't tell, but I grinned so much on that walk with Winnie that my teeth ached from the cold. Just like the mustache bit, my father kept this Santa and the dog thing going. When I didn't get out of bed to help him make pancakes, <clears throat> he served them to me anyway with a, you'll have to learn to wake up early if Santa brings you that dog. When I left my chocolate advent calendar on the floor by our TV, he said, you know, dogs are allergic to chocolate. So you can only imagine my excitement on Christmas morning, waiting for everyone to wake up and get their goddamn coffee <laughs> and situate themselves around the Christmas tree. It was excruciating because maybe this one time, that tingle of doubt that I felt was telling me that something was real. There was this large box, huge box behind the tree and my father announced, let's have Aaron open that big one from Santa first. I knew the dog wasn't real before I even opened the box because I tapped it a few times with my foot and I felt nothing! <laughs> I peeled off the wrapping anyway and opened the cardboard folds and inside was a remote control dog. Big and fluffy white, just like Winnie. I knew I should have known better, that my dad was just teasing me, but I had allowed that tingle of doubt to surround my heart, to sink with its beating until it became hope. He got me good. I glared at my dad and said, this isn't what I asked Santa for. And he smiled and said, well, sure it is. It's a dog, a remote control dog. That night, I pulled on my snow pants and boots and in an act of defiant pride, took my remote control dog for a moonlit walk. <laughs> Outside, the empty streets of my neighborhood shimmered in a snow-covered silence and I was all alone. Just me and this fur-covered robot who would never love me back. The gears that moved the dog's legs groaned loudly as it stalled on the unshoveled sidewalk. The groaning grew louder as I pushed down even harder on the green go button of the remote control, knowing full well the snow might break the dog's legs and hoping that it would. Thank you. Pick a number between one and five. Uh, three. Okay. 
Oh man, Aaron, okay. Uh, you are now the, the proud owner of a box set of the Star Wars. <laughs> This is the, the THX digitally mastered. No watched. shit. Oh man. Yeah. This is the, uh, the THX digitally mastered version. Is the last version released before the special editions. What? Um, it goes for between eight and thirteen dollars on eBay. <laughs> All right. Uh, our our next speaker is. <laughs> is someone I met um, when he came up to Chicago uh, to help me film a pilot uh, for a pilot competition. And this pilot was doomed from the start for a lot of different reasons <laughs> that I won't go into. Um, but I believed in it enough to take time, well, I, I say I took time off of work. I believe I was out of work days, um, so I pretended I pretended to have a cancer scare, um, and uh, <clears throat> that necessitated time off. Uh, and yep, and I took that time to film this pilot. We filmed this entire pilot over the course of 48 hours uh, with the uh, the help of my friend Andrew Melzer and his friend who he had brought along, whom I had never met before, um, but who, as it turns out, is pretty handy behind a camera uh, and fantastic uh, with visual effects. Um, and a, a couple years later, uh, I was lucky enough uh, for him to, to move up here to Chicago with some of those other people. Um, I had him as a, a player in my D&D game uh, for five years, five, six years, something like that. Um, and uh, I take a, I take a, a lot of, uh, take a lot of pains to, to run my D&D my game, and I have never met anyone uh, who engaged so completely and fully uh, with this, this, this world that I've built. Um, and I cannot express my gratitude to this person for uh, all of the, the weird, meaningless things he has helped me create over the years. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Drew I have a bad habit of spending far too long trying to think of a solution and ultimately missing the moment to make an impact. Uh, there are many times where I basically stay silent, trying to think of the perfect response or advice when saying or doing anything at all would be more helpful or productive. Um, this is a lesson I have struggled to master throughout my entire life. Back in December 2017, my boss and I are having a year-end review. Uh, generally positive, some areas of improvement here and there, nothing too serious. Uh, my boss asked me how I feel about my career path at the company. A little background, I'm an aspiring VFX artist and videographer, thank you Bentley, um, <laughs> who works at a video production company here in Chicago. I really love the work environment and the coworkers at my job, they're amazing. But the level of work that we produce doesn't really require a whole lot of high-end VFX, which is okay at the time because I feel like I still need to improve a lot on certain programs before I can really feel like I'm ready to apply to a higher-end VFX house. Um, but in regards to my current career, my current company, 
I didn't really see a lot of future VFX growth potential. Um, and I wanted to be honest with my boss, so I let him know that. Uh, we mulled about how we could remedy this issue, uh, and I expressed a desire to be more involved on the directing side of things. My boss was curious about my capabilities there, so, and I was quick to, well, I spoke about, about how difficult it was getting practice doing something like directing. As soon as I spoke about needing practice, my boss immediately issued me a challenge. Create a spec video to show the whole company uh, by the third week in January. It can be any length, it can be about whatever you want, but it has to be good if I want to convince them of, you know, being able to direct it all. Um, I really should have seen this coming. He's done this before. Uh, he's done this kind of thing. It's, it's uh, yeah, it was my, my bad. Uh, this is the day before I head home for the holidays for two weeks, uh, on top of some other creative obligations going on. Um, also, I realized that if I fuck this up, regardless of directing or not, it will not mean good for my future employment at this company. So, fuck me for opening my mouth and being honest. Um, <laughs> while I'm back home for the holidays, I try to noodle on what kind of subjects I might want to make a commercial for. Uh, for some reason, I become fixated on the idea of blockchain and trying to untie the knot that is explaining that concept to anyone. Um, I keep noodling on the topic until I return back to Chicago, and lo and behold, I still don't have a solid idea to work with. Uh, it is now the beginning of January. I only have two weeks to finish this video, and I really need some help. So I meet up with my friend Dugan for a fresh perspective. We scrap the blockchain uh, and just go back to uh, spitball, or, you know, just listening off different subjects that I might be interested in. Um, we start spitballing at each other. It gets a little gross. Uh, after a while, we finally land on something that doesn't require too many different actors or locations and is actually achievable. Um, I'm not super sold on the idea, but at this point, it's Thursday night. I literally only have this weekend and the next to film anything, so I gotta, you know, I gotta roll with what we got. Uh, Friday, we scramble to lock locations in the director of photography. We try to find a lead actor, but no one is available, so I decide to do it myself. Uh, Saturday, we shoot the shit. Uh, we are sh in the midst of shooting. I have a major epiphany about how I want the story to go down and decide to include this huge VFX element into the narrative now. It's a little nuts to try and shoot VFX with no planning at all, so we decide to shoot both options uh, in the sense that, or, you know, if the VFX doesn't work, we can always go back to the, to the original idea. Um, we shoot the majority of the video, the rest to be filmed the following weekend, and I begin to edit. Um, it me immediately becomes apparent that VFX is the right way to go for the story, and I begin trying to make sure that that's even possible. Um, on the next Saturday, I film the remainder of the video by myself, uh, asking a friend, Matt Giordano, to uh, help camera, uh, man the camera while I'm in frame. Um, after I get all the footage, I begin what is a final stretch, uh, basically scrambling like hell, periodically checking the time to see if I need to move on to the next phase of post-production, often doing so regardless of whether I was done or not. Um, there's just no time left for perfection. Uh, I export and upload only to see some sort of error and then fix it and then re-export and upload about four different times. Uh, I was told that it had to be submitted by email by 9 p.m. Sunday night and I literally hit the send button on the final draft on the minute of 9 p.m. before 9.01. Uh, so, it's it. Success.
Now I just have to wait four days to know if it's any good or not. Um, turns out it is good. It's actually quite good. My boss is very pleased with it, and I get a lot of compliments from my coworkers about how cool it is. I certainly feel relieved about my future at the company, and now I have a neat video under my directing belt. Um, later on, I'm able to get some of my coworkers to help polish up the, uh, the video for me for a wider release. And in that time, some things about how the project played out really start to nag at me. So many decisions were made at the last minute. Many of them choices that I was not even confident on. Ideas that, looking back, I wished I could have developed further or planned out more for maximum effect. I mean, hell, I, I really question if I would have even stayed on that idea at all if I had more time. But even if I had that extra time, really, who's to say it would have actually improved it all? Um, you know, I spent two weeks thinking on blockchain, and that produced basically nothing. Uh, and, you know, that was compared to three days that I spent on the current idea, and that was a huge success. Um, this project was uh, serving as an excellent reminder to me that I take forever to feel ready because ready doesn't exist. Uh, it, I was just making creative choices, not because they were the best choices, but because they were what worked. Uh, there was no time left for it to be anything else. Uh, it was either the idea I had on hand or missed the moment to make an impact. It's always good to, to repeat a lesson. Flash forward to a month ago, so I guess back a month ago now, um, <laughs> I am fired from my job at the video production company. One of the reasons for letting me go Citing back to the expressed concern of career growth to my boss, which I now realize was a pretty dumb thing to tell your boss uh, if you want to keep working there. So, and ultimately, I guess one spec video is not enough to really just start dishing me out director work or whatever, and I, that's understandable too. Um, so my now former boss is speaking a lot about how he's giving me the opportunity to do what I really want. Um, I don't, you know, I don't really see it that way at the time. Uh, the whole, the whole you're fired thing being a huge surprise to me. Um, I was very much hoping to spend more time there learning those qualifying VFX programs I was mentioning while maintaining a stable income and working with people that I very much enjoyed. Uh, but he's right. I could have stayed there indefinitely and never really gotten much further. I could have taken years to finally feel ready to apply to some higher level VFX house. Um, the best way to look at being fired is to see this as a final challenge. Go forth and prove yourself. Don't wait for perfection. Learn to act even when you're not ready. This is a lesson I've struggled to master, but I will. One through four. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, four. <laughs> oh, man, Drew. For a, a tech head like you, this is going to be a, a real treat. Uh, it's in here somewhere. It is an attachment that you can <laughs> plug into your phone. Here we go. 
Uh, and it's a little fan. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, our our second to last speaker uh, for the night um, is someone I was uh, I was very very uh, happy and, and and lucky to to get uh, because they're they're. Uh, well, there's someone I have I've met, and they're wonderful. They're not someone I think of necessarily as as my friend. They haven't spent a lot of time in the city. They're a they're a friend of a friend, and um, it's someone who I wish I could have spent more time with because uh, they are one of the most supportive people I have ever met. This is is someone who. Uh, after I would perform uh, your stories uh, where he was at or even just listening to the podcast would often message me out of the blue um, and tell me how much he enjoyed what I did um, and encourage me uh, to, to, to keep doing it and to work at it and to push myself. Um, someone who uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the fact that I, I did not know them them all that well um and that they were they were so prepared to uh you know to to step out like that and 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 then tell me um how much they enjoyed what i was doing uh meant uh, a lot it, it meant what i did had some sort of broader appeal beyond the people who knew me personally um and this is someone who uh is also a, a very talented storyteller in and of their own rights um, and I asked them here tonight because I wanted them to appreciate how much, uh, or how much I appreciate what they do as well. Um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Ben Rather. Yeah. Oh. Gonna, gonna stand here, uh, and good Lord, I hope I don't let you down, Andrew, because uh, I'm gonna. Uh, <laughs> brevity is the soul of wit, and I am anything but brief. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, firstly, a word of thanks. Of course, it is an honor beyond my comprehension that you should ask me to be here tonight. My God, Andrew, you don't know what I think of you. You're the smartest, wittiest person. I mean, like, you, you've got my thoughts three steps ahead of me whenever you tell a story. I'm like a kid. Every time I read the podcast and that you're on a story, uh, you're, you're going to be on it. I'm like a kid getting close to Disney World. I'm like, oh, he's going he's gonna to talk. He's going to talk. It's going to be great. <laughs> Anyway, uh, if anybody isn't familiar with Andrew's work, I'm, I'm sure there's probably nobody here, but anybody at home listening, uh, I encourage you to check out The Last Journey of the Flying V from last year. You've got homework. That is ugh, such a good story. <laughs> anyway, um, Sasha, Andrew, we will miss you intensely. Thank you for everything you've done for us. And Andrew, I look forward to the book that you will write someday. <laughs> All right. So a couple of years ago, uh, Henry, my son, six years old, we're sitting in the, now he's six, we're sitting in the living room listening to Pandora at a kid's music, Muppets, Disney, you know, that sort of thing. A song comes on I've never heard before and it really catches me. It's called Good Girl Winnie Foster. Okay. It's from a musical based on the book Tuck Everlasting. I didn't know there was a musical based on this book, but I, I got on Amazon, I listened to a couple songs, there were some on YouTube, I'm like, you know, I know every word to the music man, Jesus Christ Superstar. Let's do this. So, got, got the soundtrack delivered to the home. Now, I take the kids with me. My daughter, Evie, is now two and a half. My son is, is six. Um, 
I take them with me everywhere, every day I can, everywhere we can go together. I love taking the kids with me. My wife stays at home with them during the day, and she has her, home, her business in the home, so for us to get out of there is probably a good idea as much as possible to give her her space and her own time to be a human and an adult. Um, <laughs> anyway, the kids love going hiking with me if I can convince them there's a waterfall on the path, or uh, they, they love it, and, and they love going to the creek at my parents' farm. Um, they'll go to the hardware store with me if they can get a bag of Cheetos to share in the impulse buying rack. Um, right around the time we got this soundtrack is when Evie could come with us reliably. She was old enough that I could put her in the car, I could just talk to her and calm her down, and we listened to Tuck Everlasting a lot, many times. Henry liked it. I loved it. Uh, so to tell you about it, I'm not Glenn Weldon or Stephen Thompson, but I'm, I'm going to try to give you my best input here. It's a musical that affects Aaron Copeland's style hard, and that's fine. I love Aaron Copeland. There's a part from one of the songs that is just a blatant ripoff of Rodeo. You can hear it. I'm like, okay, okay, fine. It, 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 it's, it's okay. Play on, man. Play on. Um, but some of the songs and some of the high points are really high, and some of the low po points are really not. Uh, I mean, the, the humor is awkward at points, and you're like, okay, I, I read a little bit more about it. It ran for just about a month. 57 performances on Broadway. I can understand that, honestly. You know, uh, again. <laughs> um, top of the world, everlasting, good songs. Hugo's first case, throw it away. Um, if you're like me and you've never read the book Tucker Everlasting, uh, 1975 by Natalie Babbage, it's one of the first young adult books uh, of the genre, so to speak. Uh, don't worry, there's a 2002 Disney movie starring Alexis Bladell that I've also never seen. Uh, but the soundtrack is high in exposition, so I think I've got a good grip on what they're talking about. In the late 19th century, a young girl named Winnie Foster leaves home. She's not allowed to leave the house very often, so she runs off into her family's woods. While she's there, she runs into the Tuck family, who are doing a family reunion of sorts. They do this every 10 years where they meet in this area that they used to live in. They are immortal. She learns that they have drunk from the Fountain of Youth, which is there in her woods, because I guess it had to be somewhere. Uh, <laughs> uh, the family consists of May and Angus uh, Tuck, the, the, the mother and father, and their two sons, Jesse and Miles, who are 17 and 22 eternally, respectively. Uh, they explain to Winnie who they are, and uh, Right about that time, Jesse, who's either 17 or 117, starts to develop feelings for her. Uh, think Twilight, I guess? Yeah, let's not dwell on it. Um, meanwhile, in town, a man in a yellow suit, that's as much as we ever learn about this guy, shows up. Somehow he knows that the Tuck family's there. He starts following clues, and he gets out to the woods, and there is an encounter, an engagement, when uh, the, the man approaches the Tucks and says, I can make you as rich as sultans. Do you not understand what you have here? And the Tucks are not willing to inflict their immortality on an unsuspecting populace. Uh, so the man grabs Winnie, threatens her, threatens to make her immortal as part of a sideshow that he's going to run to show how the fountain works. And May Tuck mostly accidentally turns and kills him with the butt of her shotgun. Okay, that's a climax, I guess. Uh, it's a short flight for a broken arrow. The town constable... <laughs> The town constable shows up, arrests May, uh, she's to be hanged in short order, but they spring her out of jail and the Tucks all skip town before her immortality can be revealed. Uh, they leave Winnie with a vial of the spring water to make the decision to drink it when she reaches adulthood or not. About a hundred years later, 
the Tucks all come back to town and find in a cemetery her headstone, which has, you know, like, loved grandmother and a um, champion fisherman all on there. And they see that she has led the life that they wanted her to have um, led. Why did they leave her the spring water if they wanted her to have a fulfilling life? Anyway, whatever. Um, many questions are raised by this story. Are the animals in the woods surrounding the spring also immortal? <laughs> Could no other human have found the spring up to this point? Um, if you just stop eating and you don't die from it, can you just stop defecating? Maybe. Um, my, my son from the back seat uh, raised a very good question. He said, Dad, if they all live forever, but they can feel pain, won't that be terrible when the sun expands and they're trapped in the sun forever? <laughs> my sobering son, I guess that's what would happen. But the, the larger question here is why has this soundtrack captured me? Why am I telling you all this? A, a few reasons. Firstly, I've been thinking a lot about mortality. And second, I've been thinking about decisions I've made in my life. Now, I've long been fascinated with immortality in fiction and storytelling. There's Hob Gadling from Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman, and there's Angel from the Buffyverse, and Doctor Who, we've got Captain Jack and the woman who lived. In DC Comics, we've got the immortal man and his eternal nemesis, Vandal Savage. Sure. Um, has anybody here seen The Man from Earth? Um, it's a really good movie. Uh, one of the writers from Star Trek wrote it. Uh, check it out. It's on Netflix. Um, <laughs> anyway. They're all notable entries and characters who have figured out how to keep living when death is no longer just a, an option, just something that happens, like, okay, just keep on existing. For myself, I have trouble letting go of mistakes I've made, people I've hurt, things I've forgotten to do. The misting of memory with time is a blessing for me. I've had to put effort into forgiving myself in the moment for my screw-ups because otherwise I'm going to plague myself with them tomorrow and onward. But... Beyond myself, there's a million problems in this world that I will never hope to be able to fix. Gun violence is going to continue to be a problem in the United States. People will still starve in war-torn countries, and other people will be racist and unwelcoming to the refugees of those wars. I will never be able to convince members of my family not to vote for Trump and Pence in 2020. I have found that I take comfort in knowing that I, and all this, is going to end someday. It, it doesn't seem to detract me from the good that I'm doing in my day and the enjoyment that I get in, in my life. Um, everything I do has value when I'm kind to my children, when I fight for what my patients need. But at the end of it all, yes, the real end, Henry, when the sun expands, depending on who you talk to, we don't really have a lot of evidence that humans are going to make it off this rock and interstellarly. In fact, we're probably not even going to be here in the four or seven billion years when the sun expa expands. I find it reassuring somehow that whatever harms I've done and that we've all done, whatever mess we've made of things, in the end, it's all going to be burned clean from the universe. And again, why is that bringing me comfort right now? <laughs> but it is, surprisingly. In a lot of ways, like the Immortal Tux, I have become an outsider in the world I knew before. I moved back home to southern Illinois five years ago to be closer to my extended family and to do the small town thing. I like it. I like going to farmer's markets. I like going to state parks. I like walking through a mown hayfield. There's, there's nothing quite as clean and perfect as all the bales that have been picked off the field. I, I love it at the end of the day. But there are many things about me now that are different from the me that left 11 years prior to that. 
I staunchly now believe that people should be provided with opportunities regardless of where they're coming from. I believe it is our job to care for those who cannot care for themselves. I am no longer religious. I have strong feelings about gun control and women's reproductive rights and have only recently been tuned into the amazing and terrible struggle that women and minorities have to face on a daily basis. It's, it's almost amazing, like me as a white male, that I don't know everything there is to know. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have learned that I live in Trump's America, specifically. That's my home base. I can't talk with the people that I work with and see on a regular basis about the way I really feel about things. My wife is amazing. I can talk to her about anything. And we've got our friends that we can communicate with. But at large, I, I have to keep myself to myself. Now, it's about time. It's about how much time we've got left and the time that we can do something with it. That's right. Yes, that's yes. right. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not immortal, though I swear that must be how I feel lately. Like all of this, the, the children, the, the day after day, it could just go on forever. All I can do, all I should do is the best I can to know I did so that someone else's road can be a little easier. I don't think I have a better message than the song The Wheel from the, towards the end of the musical. Hey, why not? In it, the father, Angus Young, is explaining to Winnie that maybe immortality is not all it's cracked up to be. He says, it's a wheel, Winnie, a ripple in water, girl to wife to mother to daughter, like all your kinfolk come and gone. Can't stop growing, rowing, changing. Moving on. Good luck, Andrew and Sasha. Eric, to the stage. <laughs> Yes, sir. He's, uh, he's going to get suited up here. Uh, to, to anybody who's familiar with me previously being on the podcast, you know you're not going to get away without me singing a song today. So. He's the opposite of Andrew in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I fish out my pick. I do want to say so. Uh, ben is one of my very good friends, and as is Andrew. Uh, I'm going to get my pick out of this while I talk. And I know them separately. I went to college with Ben, and I obviously met Andrew in Chicago. And I always suspected that they would be very, very good friends if they had known each other like back in high school. And unfortunately, whatever fate or providence or whatever didn't see fit to put them in the same geographical location until maybe, what, two or three years ago right you guys about, actually yep. met? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's cool, because I think they're both very like, excellent people. And I'm glad that this meeting happened, because it proves that I was right. <laughs> <laughs> and that is what matters. Yeah. Also, the dad's name is Angus Young? Yeah, Angus. How does he sing well, in the... Uh... Yeah, Angus Tuck, but yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. I think you said Angus Young. I, I probably did. That, that would not surprise me. All right. All right. Three. One, two, three, four.
773, uh, who decided in his retirement he was going to write books about comedy, um, and uh, this he he uh, hired me uh, for a while to proofread his books at an exorbitant rate um, before I made the mistake of trying to give him notes on a screenplay, at which point he cut off all ties. With me. Uh, uh, 
But this is a copy of the book from uh, before I proofed it. Um, you'll notice there are typos on the back, which I noticed. Uh, which is why he, he hired me on. But please, oh, enjoy it. My pleasure. Uh, we, have, we have one last uh, speaker for the evening, um, and, and hopefully I have said enough nice things about everyone uh, that I can get away with saying that this next person is my favorite storyteller in the city of Chicago. Uh, is why I've saved them for last. Uh, the first time I saw this person perform uh, at your stories, the first time I met them, um, and they, they had just gotten to the city, uh, and as they started speaking, I stood bolt upright, uh, and I or sat bolt upright, and I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I experienced um, that, that weird uh, feeling artists get of, of simultaneous uh, elation and intense jealousy. Uh, this person is someone who has an ability I really wish I had, uh, which is to speak off the cuff uh, in a, a clear, a compelling, a tight way. Um, I am someone who has to, to write out any product I do. Um, and this person is very able to just have a couple of PBRs and let the spirit take them. <laughs> uh, and I, I have uh, nothing but respect for uh, both their stories and the, the way they live their life. Um, please welcome to the stage, Chris Crockwell. <laughs> So, <clears throat> about time. I was thinking about the theme and it left a really bad taste in my mouth and it took me a little bit to figure out why that was. And I realized pretty immediately that it's because every time I've heard it in recent memory, it's been before or after some of the most insane toxic horseshit you can imagine. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is because everything is fucking terrible or because the median age of people I talk to on a regular basis is 65. <laughs> or because when people on the phone hear a mild southern accent, they think they can evacuate the bilious sack of hatred that they've stored somewhere in their body. <laughs> but but it, it, it is always the case that when I hear that phrase, it, it, I'm incredibly put off. I, so I work at Harold Washington Library Center. Um, Opened in 1993, 765,000 square feet of dysfunctional beauty. Uh, it is the main library in a system of over 80 and one of the largest urban library systems in the world. And what happens to me constantly is people coming up and complaining about the people who are there. I was at the desk about a month ago. And this pasty old motherfucker walks up, and he has to say, he's like, he's complaining, he's like complaining that the third floor smells bad, and that he saw people watching pornography. There is a lot of it. So much. <laughs> he complains about the state of the bathrooms and the fact that lots of people have uh, large pieces of baggage with them, and then he looks down at me for a moment, and he says, do you think this is the way these people act at home? It's like they're animals. And I was like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> That's not cool to say. 
Also, I couldn't really tell you how a lot of these human beings that you're talking about act at home, because a lot of them don't have one. So, that's pretty toxic. And the fact that you felt like I was a safe space for you to vent it to, I, like, what does that say? Should I shave or something? <laughs> like, I don't know why that, why that's fine. Uh, it happens over and over every year. It happens constantly. People come up to me and what they don't understand that they're talking about is the sanitization of public spaces, right? It's something that I'm incredibly passionate about um, because it's a completely wrong-headed way to have that conversation. Um, Chicago already does a pretty good job, if you're paying attention. It's called hostile architecture, right? Have you ever seen a bench with a motherfucking armrest on it? You don't need one where to put your elbows on a bench. You know why those armrests are there? Those armrests are there to keep people from laying down, right? If people sleeping on benches is your problem, an armrest is not the solution. <laughs> You're not fixing the problem that way. Harold Washington Library, the place where I work, it is cold. It is uncomfortable. For a reason, they have made it that way. The Winter Garden, which is just like a bad mall atrium on the ninth floor <laughs> that people pay an exorbitant amount of money to get married in, um, it's, it's cold, it's uncomfortable, it's that way for a reason. This is the way we've constructed our spaces, right? And it's the security outlook of most of the organization also. When I worked at the branch, we had a security consultant come in and uh, talk to us about the way we were enforcing the rules. And because I was the one that was enforcing them, it was loosely. <laughs> and he was upset that I was letting people bring in as much baggage as I was uh, into the branch. And he, he told me this, and I will never forget. He said, you know, like, the way the place looks, the things you let people do here, it informs who's going to come. And you need to think about that. And I was like, but these are the people that come, asshole. <laughs> like, what weird Stepford patrons do you think are coming to this place? <laughs> I'm on the south side of Chicago. There are not a lot of upper middle class families that are going to patronize this branch. These people are our family. These people are our regulars. They spend every day here. They read magazines. They're kind and funny and interesting people. Every year at Harold Washington, we have a mandatory safety training, right? A mandatory safety training. Uh, and it's hard to get people in the door to watch 30 minutes of active shooter videos produced by the federal government <laughs> and then talking about fire safety because uh, all of that's pretty grim and awful. Um, by the way, those active shooter videos, like the entire advice they give you is uh, run, hide, fight. And I'm like, motherfucker, I'm a mammal. That's probably how I'm gonna do. <laughs> like, I think, I don't know that that's advice that you have to give people, uh, but the way they get people in the door uh, is a showcase of improvised weaponry. Right? Um, they are items that have been confiscated by, from patrons at Harold Washington over the years. Uh, things like lipstick chips. Uh, there are several of those. Hands off to those women, fantastic. Um, links, three foot links of pipe with nails in them. 
also pretty amazing that you can sneak that into anywhere. How big was your coat? It's amazing. Um, but the, the glibness and the humor with which they present these items is well out of place uh, to the grim reality that exists that people on the ragged edge need ways to protect themselves in situations that you and I will never fucking experience, right? You're never going to be in a situation where you need a length of pipe with nails in it. I hope. <laughs> if we re-elect Trump, it might happen. But probably not, right? And th there might as well be a carnival barker out front saying, like, come witness the deranged, violent innovations of the indigent. <laughs> that's, that's not a good tone, but it's the tone that the city takes, and it's a tone that a lot of the world has taken, that, that we have a population that's a problem. And the way you address that problem is by being aggressive toward that population. And like, it makes me deeply sad. Um, I understand that it's difficult to see and that it's uncomfortable, it should make you uncomfortable. It should make you angry. When I'm downtown, I do the same thing everybody else does. I work there. I put on headphones and I ignore everyone who tries to talk to me. Right? Because I have a finite supply of singles and smokes and emotional energy. We all do that. It's, it's an urban survival mechanism. But you should be uncomfortable and you should be fucking furious all the time. But not the way those people are furious, because those people are assholes. <laughs> your, your reaction to seeing people struggling this hard should not be, what do we do to make these people more invisible or to make ourselves more comfortable? Your reaction to seeing these people should be, holy shit, what have we done? Because we've done something, right? We've either let something exist or created something that churns people up like meat. And then, when their problems make us uncomfortable, we, like, pointing at them is not the solution to that problem. Right? You should be angry. You should be uncomfortable. But you should be angry and uncomfortable because we done fucked up somewhere. <laughs> not because these people are a burden. So it is, it is about time. Right? It is about time that we built affordable housing in the backyard of every pasty motherfucker in Chicago who goes to a community organization meeting and clutches their goddamned pearls about property values. It is about time. It is about time that we looked at things like universal basic income. Right? Because these people, these people did not ask to be in this situation. And they're not happy to be in it and they don't see an easy way out, and minimi minimizing and marginalizing and pushing them further to the borders of our existence so that we can be comfortable is not the way that you fix that. It is about goddamn time that human problems got human solutions, and that we saw people as people, and that we stood up and said, this is not something that can keep happening. It is about goddamn time. Yeah.
don't have to choose a number. Uh, there, there is one, one gift left. Um, it's. I, I feel like all my agency's been stolen. <laughs> uh, I think it may have been preordained. It is, uh, it is perfect for you. It is a book. It is a spare copy of uh, my favorite book. I have no doubt that you've read it. Um, if you don't own it, great. Here's a copy. If you do, please give it to someone who hasn't read it. Oh man! I gave mine away. There you go. Thanks so much. So that was all of our speakers. Um, please, everyone, uh, join me in a big round of applause for everyone who spoke. Thank you so much to all of our storytellers. Uh, and thank you to everyone who came here tonight. I have no idea what it is. It's probably very late. Um, I realize many of you have work in the morning on. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to stick it out and hang out with me on my last night in Chicago, uh, a city that, for better or for worse, I love and I am sad to leave. Um, I, you know, when you, you stand on the, on the threshold of something like this, all you see are all the, the wonderful things you are leaving behind. Uh, and it's nice to have so many of those things, so many of those people all in one room tonight. Uh, so I can say goodbye to you. Um, I hope to see you all soon, uh, and I will remember you all. Uh, if Eric and everyone else would uh, join me uh, for, for one last song. Um, it is a short song, I promise, uh, and I chose it because it sums up, I hope, uh, the, the sentiments I just tried to express uh, perfectly. Thank you. I guess we're standing. Um, I'll keep this quick, but I, you know, I host the show most of the time, so I'm going to save a little bit of peace, which is, uh, I, there's so many things I could say about Andrew, and many people have expressed them here. Uh, so I'll just get personal, which is the point of the show, which is uh, in January 2013, uh, the night of one of these shows, my grandmother passed away, and I'd spent about five years like taking care of her, and I, I mean, that's like a horrible thing. I had no idea what to do, and uh, like... About a, two or three weeks after that, I was just like floundering. I'm, you know, I'm not sure what to do with my life. And Andrew made a very simple offer. Hey, man, uh, Chris and I are doing a show at the Toronto Sketch Fest. We want you to come tech it for us. And I'm like, said, fuck yeah. Like, why not? Like, why wouldn't I do that? Well, I can now just like go to Toronto and do comedy with my friends, cause I can. And um, I mean, I don't know if like that is the reason like I'm here doing this show today, but it's certainly a reason that I love doing comedy so much is because of that trip with Andrew and Chris that I took that was like, it was exactly what I needed at the right time and somehow Andrew knew that and gave it to me. So thank you very much, Andrew, for that. Cool. You guys want to say anything before we do this? I mean, Andrew Bentley, you're a very delightful and talented man who can do anything you put your mind to. And I'm very honored that I got to work with you on a few projects and be your friend, so thank you. the ground you walk on. You're just the most beautiful man I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I told Sasha this is the night that everyone gets their last, everyone in Chicago gets their last chance to try to hook up with Andrew Bentley. Excuse me, I would like to hook up with Sasha. Or Sasha. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Four years and nothing. <laughs> Four years and nothing. Uh, you know, I, 
know, I appreciate every time that we uh, spend time together at all. If, even if it's like we're in the same room, we don't really get to talk. But I mean, you know, I mean, I'll miss you like crazy. Uh, you know, I'll miss playing magic with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just, I'll miss you. You and Sasha so much. Uh, uh, thank you, thank you so much for being friends with us. Being yeah. so great. All right. That's enough emotion. Here's one more. Their hooks in.